Hi guys and welcome back to the 18th episode now of the ASU Sports Business Podcast. I hope you're doing well. As usual, thank you for your feedback from our previous podcast with Team Africa Rising with Jack and Kimberly. Um, it's different sport, which was focused on cycling, but the feedback was great. And it's, again, good to put out a different perspective of, of the things that are happening on the continent. Um, the opportunities and the challenges that they face there. So thanks again for that. Um, and today, back with another another podcast with someone who is steeped in in knowledge and understanding of the African sports market and the global sports market, to be fair, as well. Um, his name is Garrett Davids from South Africa. And again, I'll just let you know, this is being done over Skype, so... Any technical issues, just bear with us on that. Um, but no, very much looking forward to this. He's someone who's been in the industry for a long time. He's got great understanding. And I'm sure by the end of this podcast, we will have a uh, a better knowledge of the challenges and the opportunities and just the landscape in Africa and even just leadership um, advice and tools that we can take into our everyday lives. So, Garrett... Welcome to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you on. It's good to be here, Gabriel, and thanks for affording me the opportunity to be part of your podcast series. No, thank you so much. I know you're a busy guy. It's been a while to get this in the diary, but it's uh, good good to, to start off. Um, so, yeah, let's, I guess let's get straight into it. So, before you know, we uh, tell people about your, the name of the companies that you run and the things that you do, what's your background and how did you end up in the sports industry? Yeah, uh, like I said uh, prior to the podcast is that I'm a law graduate like yourself and mm-hmm. we're never happy with, with, with practicing our skill for which we were qualified for. Mm-hmm. And in um, and 1994, I ended up uh, going to Australia and work as a marketing internship with Brisbane Broncos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, Brisbane Broncos was uh, the elite club uh, in, in Australian rugby league. And I spent a few months there with them, and then the, the, the appetite started to grow. And I said, how could we bring a professional sport, uh, the business management side of it, uh, to Africa? Yeah. And it took me another eight years or so before I started to organize my first sponsorship uh, conference in Cape Town in South Africa. And um, not, not, not being involved in sponsorship business myself, mm-hmm. I thought, let's create a conference around the conversation of sponsorship, which is an element which everybody's talking about, but there's not a lot of knowledge going around as to what uh, is sponsorship for that matter. And then the, the thing just grew, and um, next month we're doing our eighth, our eighth rather um, edition of the sponsorship conference. Yeah. And in between uh, 2012 and um, even prior to that, I started to Work with Socrex, which I believe you also an alumni. Yeah, that's correct. And, yeah. um, and uh, trying to bring Socrex to South Africa, and eventually we managed with the assistance of the the government to to bring Socrex to South Africa in two thousand and seven. Yeah. Two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine, prior to the World Cup, the twenty ten World Cup, mm. and um, then you know traveling with Socrex around the world, Manchester. Uh, Brazil, uh, Durban after Johannesburg, 
and um, and through that exchange of uh, contacts and networks, uh, one gets the opportunity to to meet successful people. Yeah, uh, like Gerard Julia, uh, like Rafa Rafa Benitez. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's many people uh, that I've met and uh, inspiring me through their uh, approach to do. Uh, uh, the business of sport more than the playing of sport. Yeah. And uh, m- my whole interest just then has developed around um, putting events together. Uh, I write also, I write sports policies and uh, events strategies for government uh, organizations in South Africa. Yeah. And I also work with the, the, the players union in Nigeria, uh, uh, helping them with strategy and the like. And uh, also some fundraising. Mm. Uh, you know, we have got the Stephen Kessie um, uh, vocational center, which we're trying to put up in uh, Obazwa in, in Benin City, you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, so we, we're pretty much everywhere where you can find us. No, that's amazing. Um, I love that. It's very, of course, I can relate, as you mentioned, to the legal background and the work with Soccer X. Um, how... You mentioned about speaking to lots of people and the passion for the business side of things. How did you manage to find your to find your place in such a um I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the sports market may be small, but once you're in it, there is quite a lot of room to maneuver. So how did you find your feet into okay, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're gonna best um serve the market? Yeah. I, I think the the funniest part of it all was when we first uh, promoted our uh, inaugural sponsorship uh, conference in South Africa, mm-hmm. nobody knew us and we didn't know anybody at all. We just were trying our luck. Mm-hmm. But what has happened is there were professionals that said, guys, we don't have a platform to have a conversation around sponsorship in South Africa. Let's support this guy, whoever he is. It looks like he's legit. And it just started to grow from there. And the very people that came aboard on 2012 in terms of industry professionals are still with us today. I've met with one of the, 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 the advisory board members today, and, and it's an amazing journey of seven years of organizing these events in between working with SoccerX, attending SoccerX in different countries. And I think it was because of other people that were before me that allowed me to come in and organize events because perhaps they also needed somebody that is neutral. Because you know, yeah. in the sponsorship industry, um, there is just a handful of agencies that controls all the budget that's available from yeah, corporates exactly. in sponsorship. And and there's there's a lot of uh, uh, protection of turf going on there. And me coming here from, from, from the left and people just said, okay, there is somebody neutral. Let's all just join him. Yeah. And I think we were very lucky in that way to find our feet within the sports business industry. Ah, brilliant. That's very encouraging. <laughs> I love that. Okay, Garrett. So um, another question I have for you: What's the the reality or the difference between professional sport and professional sports management as practiced in Africa? Uh, thank you. That's a very valid question. And and I, I said uh, before doing the interview with you that I'm going to do my responses from an angle of encouraging Africa yeah. on how we can adopt an approach or a philosophy uh, or an outlook towards uh, best practice. Mm-hmm. So, with, with, you know, everybody would say that with the advent of the English Premier League in 1992, when it corporatized, people 
use that as a benchmark or a yardstick to then professionalize the activity of football per se around the world. Mm-hmm. So we saw in South Africa, our own Premier Soccer League came about. A few years later, we saw the Nigerian Premier League come about and Kenya and everybody else now starts to follow to copy the English Premier League model. Yeah. Now, the, the big difference between where we are at in Africa with ownership per se of these clubs is that with the advent of the English Premier League, you also got clubs to corporatize. Yeah. Uh, they, 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 they changed from a family-run business, primarily so, from a family-run business to a corporate business. Now, what we didn't find is that clubs are being run like Coca-Cola. You know, uh, Coca-Cola is a brand that's driven by marketing strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a continuous uh, uh, marketing activity in the face of the consumer, reminding them that drink Coca-Cola and not anything else. Yeah. Okay. But what we find in Africa, and in my dealings, especially with in South Africa and Nigeria, what we find is that our league would be professional, but our clubs are not being run on a professional sports management basis. Mm, mm, mm. You know, the sad, sad story in Nigeria is that there are clubs that has not paid players for months and months and sometimes even years. Wow. You know, when, when, when players go on strike, then, we, then the club's called in the army because you know that the club is owned by government yeah. to come and quell the unrest, you know, despite the fact that players were uh, protesting peacefully, demanding the payment of the wages. So what we find is that everybody says that, for example, and I don't want to restrict this conversation to football, is that football is a professional sport in Africa. Yes, we can agree with that. But our business of football is not run professionally. Yeah. Just today, in Egypt, uh, president of FIFA, Infantino, president of CAF Ahmad, yeah. and Fatma Sabura had a meeting with 13 chairmen and presidents of top African clubs. They met in Cairo today. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. And the, only con- the, the one topic on the agenda was how can clubs in Africa trans- can transform to bring the product of football and the business side thereof on par with that in Europe. Yeah. 13 attended. Now, I'm not sure if only 13 were invited. I'm convinced all of Africa was invited yeah. to come and join this conversation. Now, what we say is if we shift the focus for a moment from professional football, professional sport, to that of professional sports management and start to run sport as a business, the first thing that we would need to look at is corporate governance. Mm-hmm. So what is corporate governance in terms of that difference in reality? Corporate govern- governance is primarily founded on six to eight different pillars. Number one, in business, in the corporate world, corporate governance would be the set of point would be accountability. Right. So yeah. if we start to run our sport in Africa like a business, the very first response would be who's accountable to whom. Yeah. Then, as you would know in the corporate world, the business can only flourish if there's fairness as a means of creating equity between all the people involved in the business. Mm-hmm. So fairness would be then that second pillar. 
Then thirdly, probably for me, the second pillar would be transparency, openness. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, Transparency is a big thing in terms of leadership. So if, 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 for example, um, uh, there's an issue in a country that everybody's starting to complain about, and it's a political problem in nature, then one expects the president to come out soonest and have a say about the situation as opposed to wait for a week. So transparency in sports management becomes a big issue. We don't find that in Africa, and we need to say, guys, what are the interventions? And I believe, you know, the challenges that we as society face in Africa has got to do with the way we were raised as people, the way we do things traditionally. We need to have created a different outlook. And I'm saying, I made a joke the other day, I said, that in order to get good sports administrators, you need to start to train them around sports principles at the age of six, yeah. at the age of five, at the age of four, for that matter. Mm-hmm. So maybe it is true we need to start there already. Yeah. Then another pillar of corporate governance in sports management, like you find in the corporate world, is an assurance of things are okay, an assurance that things are above board, that we are accountable and that we are a transparent the people involved in business, they want that assurance that it's a sustainable business that they're being involved with. And then obviously the other pillar, is the, the key pillar within corporate governance is leadership. Yeah. Now, we're not just talking about appointing the, the right people in leadership positions. We're also talking about the people with the right attitude. Mm-hmm. People that says, I can lead. People say that I can embrace when we go through tough times. People say that I can open my arms and congratulate when we have good times. And then lastly, a key pillar within uh, a corporate governance would be stakeholder management. Yeah. And stakeholder management creates participation. And in sport, the biggest component of stakeholder uh, segment is that of the fans and the, the supporters, yeah. for that matter. But we find that in Africa... They pretty much don't have a say in the way clubs are run like mm. you would have the supporters club in England having a strong say, or in Europe for that matter. So, give an example. Uh, you would know better. The whole of Europe had a, a supporters clubs had a meeting after the debacle with um, the European, the Europa League final in, where was it, Kazakhstan? Oh, what, the one between in Arsenal and May? Chelsea? Yeah, Arsenal and Chelsea. Yeah, and, yeah. and with the ticket prices in Madrid. Yeah, that's correct. The, yeah. the major supporters uh, associations from around Europe got to meet with UEFA and there was a response. UEFA kept the ticket price. Now, we talk stakeholder involvement here. Now, in Europe, we have the European Football Council, UEFA, yeah. FIFPRO, and there's a few others involved that yeah. decides how are we going to continue involving stakeholders within going forward with whatever we do. So so when we talk about corporate governance in sport, we don't have to look further for learning and lessons than the corporate world for that matter. Mm-hmm. That's true. Because I think that is where we need to start with with, yeah. with, with our learning, you know? So is that so is that what <clears throat> excuse me. So I think you've just answered my next question because I was gonna ask how do you feel the custodians of sport can uh, bring a balance between the two, but I think you've answered that very well in terms of the the pillars from corporate governance, or is there more that you want to add on that? No, no, no. Essentially, I think it's a, it's about stakeholder involvement. Yeah. You know, uh, 
the key three ones for me would be uh, leadership, transparency, and accountability. Yeah. Uh, because if, if you have to ask any company mm. what would create a sustainable entity, yeah. uh, if, I have to, if I have to talk to you about corporate governance and ethics, they would say those would be the key issues. Yeah. There, there's a number of other things that we, we can talk about, like integrity. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, moral and business integrity. Mm. Uh, how do we then extend that to a, a, a cohesive and collective participation of your stakeholders at the end of the day? Yeah. So, 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 but, but the, the bigger intervention, and I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, the biggest intervention has to be a re-education of our understanding of how to do sports business management. Yeah. That's um. That's very true. Obviously, I'm based in London, but I know from the times that I go back and speaking to people, it's the, our mentality towards sport that has to change. Of it not being seen as um, a hobby or something not, not respected. If it was, even as you joked about as from as early as six years old, people start to understand the power that it has and the potential. But if we just get those principles right. Um, and I just want to follow up, actually, for what you said about um, learning from the the corporate world with corporate governance. Maybe being a bit more practical here, how do you how could sports organizations and entities engage with the corporate world to learn lessons of some of the six pillars that you mentioned? Especially, you know, in sport, you know, a lot of it is owned by individuals or families. How can we learn from the corporate world to increase the transparency and accountability? Okay. So, so let me let me even uh, start before uh, we look at the corporate world. Let me start at, at something that we're busy nurturing in Nigeria. Yeah. So for a few years now in Nigeria, we want to change this mindset of who owns the club. Yeah. And I said uh, uh, that you know we need to understand the role of the FA, and we need to understand the different role of the league per se. Mm-hmm. So what we do now in Nigeria with the players' union is the idea is that every district, every municipal local area yeah. would have a community-owned club. Okay. And once the community-owned club has uh, uh, has been established, then there we need to start and say to people that this is not a family-run business. Yeah. This little community club is going to be run on the principles of corporate governance of which it would lead to sustainability and a business at the end of the day. Yeah. I think, for me, I have to look at the long term as opposed to the short term. Yeah. The short term would be, is to say to those who are involved in sport at this point in time, is to look outside of their own domain and say, how can we then re-educate ourselves around the notion of how to run sport in a professional manner? Yeah. The European Club Association has brought out a club guide. Now, 217 clubs that belong to the European Club Association, they go on regular masterclasses and workshops around this guide. Um, The European Club Association, for the next two years, has released the dates on which those masterclasses will be held around this guide that they designed on club management in Europe. We... We've tried to bring those people out to Africa, but the cost is obviously a bit high. Mm-hmm. We can find donors to bring those very same people who wrote the guide mm. for the European Club Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will very much be a welcome intervention. So, 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 so we look at it at two sides, the intervention. One, create new entities 
with new understanding and new thinking that corporate governance will dictate and nothing else. Yeah. And then at present, because we, we, we can't just wish people away, we can't wish clubs away that's run by families, yeah. um, we need to say, come on board and re-educate those who run your club for you. For example, if my father owns Kaijichi Football Club and he appoints me as the marketing manager, mm-hmm. am I accountable to any board? Am I accountable to any external shareholders? Am I accountable to the supporters club? I'm only accountable to my father who loves me and he's going to tell me I'm doing a great job even if I don't. Isn't that the reality? Yeah, it's true. It is true. And you you mentioned about um, community-owned clubs. There is actually one club, especially in Nigeria that I know of, um, Abuja Metro FC, which are doing good. Yeah. They're in Nigeria, so community-owned. So they're changing like the dynamics of how, as you mentioned, how football organisations are run. And it's important, I mean, I just want to pick up on something that you've mentioned. Um, you've spoken a lot about collaboration and what's been going on in Europe and learning from their principles, best practice, and bringing it back. Um, I spoke to you before this podcast about the, the event that we held at ASU earlier this year. And we spoke about NBA Africa and what they're doing. And just a lot of collaboration, but there was quite a lot of um, there were quite a lot of people in attendance that thought the real change needs to happen by Africans for Africans, and not so much as other organisations coming in and saying they're doing it for X amount, but for their own gain. What's your, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think that that true change will come through collaboration, or does it need to be run by Africans for Africans? I'm, I'm in hundred percent agreement when it comes to changing the way we do things. So in South Africa, where I'm based, a few years back, we brought a concept called outcomes-based education from Ireland and from Australia into South Africa. It has failed the education system. Simple reason, we have never Africanized it. Right? So when we bring learning from overseas, from Europe to Africa, we first need to look at the conditions in Africa. So you can't bring the fourth industrial revolution to a village who's got no electricity. Mm. Right? So we need to look at the conditions of the village before we say, guys, let's bring best practice here. The community will say, we have got other priorities. Now, the learning that we need to get from somewhere else, it is vital in terms of our own uh, scope and our pathway as to how we're going to change things as Africans. We decide the pace the direction and the end result. Nobody else must decide that for us. And I'm 100% agreement with um, what your colleagues have said at the yeah. event that you organized. Two things I want to mention uh, uh, in, in relation to that. Yeah. The NBA is launching this week next year yeah. in, in Africa. And you know what is the primary reason? There's 500, p- 500 million people with mobile phones. Mm-hmm. And they can communicate with 500 million people on a daily basis around WhatsApp, uh, whatever platform, social uh, and digital media platforms are out there. And the NBA has got this vision. But vision is created by the experience of the past. I need to grow exponentially because of my professional sports management experience of the past. Mm-hmm. Real Madrid has just appointed a chief transformation officer. Now, in Africa, when you talk transformation, you talk economic transformation, political transformation, all sorts of other transformation. Mm -hmm. 
Real Madrid is so advanced in sports business management that they appoint somebody that can talk about the future. Yeah. <laughs> all, he's, all he's doing is what will be the fan like in terms of demands and wants within 20 years from now. That's mm. what they, they are at. We, as I, as I saw now in the comments on, on LinkedIn, is people are saying that this meeting in Cairo today with Infantino, Zamora, and, and, and Ahmad, some club, clubs have grown, but others have stagnated. Yeah. So the question is, are we getting into sport to line our own pockets? Or are we getting into sport to create a bigger empire? Mm-hmm. I want to be part of that people who build the empire as opposed to just line my pockets in the interim. Yeah. So I hope I've answered your question there. I, yeah. I see it as, 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 as a spot-on comment. Yeah. Africa must determine the change in Africa. Nobody else can do that for us. Yeah, fantastic. I think on that note, we'll take a, a short break and then we'll come sure. back with um, some more questions. See you guys in a bit. Thank you. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Africa Sports Unified and I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Please do let us know your thoughts. If you have any topics you would like us to discuss or people you want to join us on the podcast, then we'll be keen to know more. Connect with us on social media, AS Unified, across all platforms or simply leave a comment. Hope you guys enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back. Um, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am because this is real, real gold dust. Um, but Garrett, let's get back into it, I guess. So following up, following on from what we were saying before the break, should sport entities um, explore links with educational institutions to help train up up-and-coming administrators and executives in governance and sports business? Uh, I, I'm 100% for that. And you know, um, sports management, uh, if we should start off, it's primarily an, an arena that focuses on the sports business uh, uh, principles uh, of, of how to run a uh, business uh, on, a, on a very professional manner. Yeah. And um, the, the, the need perhaps to, to educate and upskill our existing practitioners, sports executives, administrators, to perhaps encourage them to obtain a degree in sports management yeah. or a diploma or some qualification. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because, so remember, when we went to university, we all had this theoretical uh, learning. But when we went to do our articles and we went into practice, we discover that the real world is so much different in terms of implementing yeah. what we've learned. Big time, big time. Yeah. And and, 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 and and in my case, it, it drove me away from, from practicing law because I said, but it's two different things. But I think today, the first thing that I want to, 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 to mention is that sports management education is not affordable. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I look at online courses that are presented and unfortunately, I have to make reference to Europe again because this is the only place closer to us where it's happening. Yeah, true. And we're talking about two, three thousand euros for an online course. Whereas I would say I'll charge 300 euros and do a, ma- a week-long masterclass on the very same subject matter. Yeah. But I know it's a business for those people. So in Africa, we have business schools. We have top business schools. They run sports management courses 
as part of another faculty. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Cape Town, we have a sports management course, but it's part of the commerce faculty. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, but the focus is on commerce, general commercial practice, uh, practice and, and education. But what happens to the sports management, it becomes a side issue. Yeah. Now, I believe if you look at, at La Liga, La Liga has, 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 has signed collaboration agreements with a university in Spain, and so does Barcelona. You know, and then on top of that, you also got the Sports Business Institute yeah. uh, in Barcelona that organizes many of the online uh, business education courses within sport. I think um, a lot of these courses, and I have to be critical, are, are not accessible yeah. to people in Africa for that matter. Yeah. But how are we going to uh, encourage people really to go for sports management education if the parent who has started the club is insisting that his children work in the business of which there would be no time to go to university and to get that kind of education. So I would then encourage educational institutes to then take the first step and say to clubs, especially in Africa, the the biggest uh, 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 missing component today in Cairo for that meeting Mm. with CAF there were no universities. Yeah. Uh, how can you say to clubs, let's have a conversation on how to make your business more appealing as an as, as, as a, as a offering to the community and to the brands, but we're not saying here are some interventions. So the Stockholm uh, uh, Business School who wrote the, the, the guide for the European Clubs Association, those are the kind of people that we should bring to the table. And, and, and you know, um, I believe that if you have a conversation around uh, uh, change, then all the stakeholders has to be in the room because all the stakeholders' in- input is of vital importance. So to cut a long story short, I believe that universities, uh, in fact, two years ago, we tried to, to organize a conference on sports business management education. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that in Africa, it is... It is a non-existing conversation at universities. Yeah. And so the sad part is, uh, Gabriel, every time we have to look outside of Africa yeah. for, for for direction to create our own pathway mm. of development. Mm. So yeah. it's a challenge. It, it is, because similar to you, I was doing research on this too. I mean, there are a few, as you mentioned, um, institutions that do some sort of sports management uh, course or module. But especially on the continent, it's very, very few and far in between. We well, and maybe the reason is that the the importance of sports uh, is may not maybe isn't as fully grasped on Africa as it is to the rest of the world. And again, as you mentioned, the price that European organisations charge it would be very difficult for for maybe someone. The equivalent of me growing up in Africa could be able to, to, to afford. So it is a catch-22, but it's about just people understanding the importance of it. And even with this conversation like these to try and create a change, you know, for those things to happen. And yeah, with collaboration, maybe so, hopefully too. So yeah, it is important. It is small steps. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, small steps that we need to take. And uh, I take cognizance of the fact in Africa, we have other priorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in society, 
you can't just say that we're only going to focus on building roads yeah. and you don't focus on education and you don't focus on uh, uh, social recreation because, yeah. you know, I, I write sports policies for government entities and the, the big thing that we say is that you can't develop talent if you don't create social recreation because if you get people to participate without competition, that is where you spot the talent. Mm. No, when right. people are free to play. You are right. Any sport for that matter. You're right. But the moment you create competition, it becomes a different ball game. Yeah. And so we say to governments, I, I consult for municipalities on sports facilities, and we say to them, if you don't create recreational facilities for people, you would not be able to grow society on other levels. Yeah. Because you can use sport, as Mandela said, it can change societies. It can change people's mindset. Uh, you can change uh, a, a sport in terms of people's educational opportunities. Now, you might have a, a young person in Africa who's very inclined to do, to do video, yeah. to do videos. He's not a f football player, but now why don't we steer him in a direction to say, John, you would then be sent to a video training institute. Yeah. And then you come back and all you do is you do training videos on football, training videos on athletics, training videos on basketball for that matter. Yeah. But we don't create a pathway for people to become upskilled in sports management for that matter. Yeah. It's almost like we need to organize a career expo yeah. and say, people, these are the opportunities. Because if you, if you go to Manchester, to London, or to any big city in Europe, you find that the auxiliary services like broadcasting production, uh, like media, like digital platform service providers, they, 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 they thrive on football business doing well. Yeah. Because then they will also be in demand. Yeah. Everyone, and the result is they will also do well. Exactly. But it all benefits. comes to upskilling our people. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're right. That's a... Yeah. So that's my view on, on education, you know. It's a touchy, well, not a touchy subject. It's just a very prevalent subject, which is which is good to talk about. Um, another question I want to ask you, I want to um, challenge to you with here. You mentioned about governance. So, for example, if a charter of good governance and ethics was adopted by all sports organisations, what, in your opinion, what would be the first priority on the list, and 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 why? I would say uh, accountability. Okay. Because in order to be a leader, we're going to contradict ourselves now. You don't need to be educated and qualified in order to be a leader. A leader shows empathy. Empathy means to say, I have an understanding of your situation. Yeah. I have an understanding of your dreams and your uh, desires to, to develop yourself. I have empathy for that. And accountability is the one aspect that we need to place high on the agenda when we develop, for example, a charter of good governance and ethics of sport. Yeah. Because if I'm not accountable, if I, if, if I sit with absolute power as the president of the Basketball Federation, I can do as I please. Yeah. Now, I was, I was relating a story today. In 2013, I attended the, the Confederation uh, Cup final in Rio de Janeiro between uh, Brazil and Spain mm. the year before the World Cup. And that was on a Sunday. And the Saturday, 
evening, I was invited to a party at a penthouse on the beach in Brazil. And I made a joke today because all the people that sat on the FIFA executive committee at that stage were at this party. And mind you, most of them are languishing in jail in America. Yeah. And I said, this is the strangest experience in my whole life. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm saying, so, so these people that you connect with and you look up to, are they the real deal? Or are oh, they just there to line their pockets? Because they can do that because there's no accountability. Yeah, very true. So our, 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 our framework for governance in sports, management in Africa, needs to be redesigned. And the first thing that it must speak of is accountability. Because if I say to you, you're only going to be placed in this position if you account to us on a daily basis or on a monthly basis through a board meeting that... This is what you have done for the organization thus far. And the, you know, the business, there's only one objective yeah. is to create a dividend for the shareholder. Yeah. A business exists only for the benefit of the shareholder. And in sport, we have many shareholders, one being our, our fans and our supporters. For me, that, that's the biggest shareholder of them all because without them, your, 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 your club, your league, your, 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 your federation, your association can't exist. And, mm-hmm. and I think in Africa, in most cases, they are not taken into consideration when it comes to decision making uh, as stakeholders because there's a lack of accountability. Mm. That's interesting that you say about accountability because I totally agree. But what would also be your thoughts on, um, as you mentioned before, actually, about... Um, maybe players don't get paid. What would be your thoughts on athlete welfare? Would that be high on your list too? That is one of the biggest sore points in Nigeria. Mm. Even in South Africa a few years back, South Africa now at least has got a minimum wage. A minimum wage uh, promulgated by government, right? And so obviously the football also then uh, came up with their own minimum wage. But a few years back, um, Pick and Pay, which is one of our big uh, grocery chain stores in South Africa, mm-hmm. was a sponsor of Ajax Football Club in Cape Town. Yeah. And Ajax paid some of their players with grocery vouchers. Wow. They gave them a minimum wage, but then to top it up, they, they gave them grocery vouchers. Now let's move to Nigeria. I mean, I've seen and I'm engaging with the Nigerian Football Players Union the one thing, the one answer to your question, Gabriel, is the lack of a central bargaining agreement. Mm. In Nigeria, for the last decade, the union is having a battle with the league to sign. The, the league has agreed to sign the central bargaining agreement. Now, if you don't have a CBA, as we call it, then the player welfare would never become a priority. So... If we just focus on the umbrella called accountability and we say, let's look at one pillar under that umbrella called player welfare, then players would be in a far better position yeah. in Africa than what they are currently find themselves in. So it's a not negotiable issue. We need to prioritize uh, player welfare for that matter. Not negotiable. Yeah. And no. that would be the other big stakeholder, player, player, player involvement. Mm. Yeah. We, I feel we could talk about that for ages, but just because of time, we'll move on. But it is a key aspect, though. And, I, and yeah, there are many like agencies and organizations out there that obviously looking after the players, but as you said, is it for 
is it for the greater benefit or is it for them to land their own pocket um but yeah examples exist on, on both sides to be fair and i want to ask you um one question which i know you're passionate about too uh, which you alluded to so um pele famously one mention an african nation win the world cup before the year 2000 which hasn't happened yet <laughs> well hasn't happened um and what do you think well i know again from speaking to you beforehand maybe the reasons why that hasn't happened is because of the the structures off the field don't really support um the notion of sustainability and development of sports administrators and executives but what could be the solutions to these challenges so that maybe one day an African country could win the World Cup? It has to happen off the field. Mm -hmm. The intervention has to happen off the field. There is no doubt about the technical ability. There's no doubt about the skill levels of our players. Yeah. They prove that we can after weekend in the leagues around the world. The conditions on the ground in Africa has to be prioritized in terms of creating an enabling environment for sports entities to flourish. Mm. Now, two things. China is putting money or investing money into 50,000 football academies over the next 10 years. Wow. The likes of Liverpool and Manchester United and Spurs are opening academies in Indonesia. Now, let's be honest, Gabriel, for, for the rest of my lifetime and your lifetime, I'll be very surprised if a player from Indonesia ends up playing in the Premier League. Mm. Right? But the British clubs are investing in academies in the Middle East, India, and Indonesia of all places. Yeah. How many of them are investing in Africa? Europe has drawn the sweat and the blood of players from this continent, but Europe has not put back. It's oh. put back in the pocket of the player, which is nothing wrong with that. The player deserves that. But 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 why must Kanu build these hospitals for children with heart diseases and heart defects to fund their operations? Why must he run to Europe for support where he can't get it in Africa? Mm. Many promises has been made to him, but. I'm slightly off the point there, but what I'm trying to say is that there's this disconnect between what we give to Europe and what we get in return. Yeah. Europe is not investing in Africa in terms of, uh, let's just say, the one dream that I have is for every country in Africa to have a fully-fledged, well-equipped football academy that can feed the rest of the world. Yeah. In 2013, Gerard Ulia said to me, he says to me, don't you know of somebody that can buy the Jembe, is it the Jembe Stars, the, the academy in Ghana? Yeah. And I made a joke to him and I said, but now why don't you sell it to one of your ex-football players from Africa? He says, football players doesn't have brains for business. <laughs> right? So uh, he, he said it in jest, right? He wasn't serious. But what I'm trying to yeah. say is that Red Bull invested $5 million in an academy in, in Ghana they invest the money and they walk away. So, the bigger picture is here, is that in Africa, the priorities need to change before we can think about winning a World Cup. Because yeah. problem number one, 
next World Cup. Nigerian players are threatening to strike. The Egyptian players has not arrived because of uh, Ramadan. You have all these obstacles placed in the the, 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 the the part of development or winning a World Cup, which is just repetitive and it happens every single World Cup. Yeah. Last year was the first year Nigerian players had a comfortable ride because Nigerian has never had as much as sponsors yeah. before the World Cup than ever before in the history. Yeah. And you know why? Now, the Nigerian team was a winning team for the last four years. Mm. Was a, they performed. It was a winning team. Now, if the team is winning and the administrators is on par with that in terms of uh, making sure that there are no issues and shenanigans going on, then Africa can start looking at perhaps winning a World Cup. So, I'm not good in recollection of history. Mm-hmm. No African team has gone further than the quarterfinals in the World Cup. Despite what Pile was saying, I'm saying is that a, 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 a Asian team will probably win the World Cup before an African team wow. because of the investment they're making. Wow. Well, we know where China is getting their money from. It's all government money. Yeah. But to, to pay a coach $12 million a year, you will never hear of that in Africa. But that's, that's besides the point. The point is that we have too many... Uh, 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 and I think the players also got to blame. To give an example, the South African women's team qualified for the World Cup in France this yeah. year. They didn't score a single goal. They came back to South Africa and they think they are world beaters. Hmm. And they lost again Botswana last week in the Olympic qualifiers. Yeah. Now, now, how can you go from World Cup to lose against your neighbor? And I think the mindset uh, we need to change in terms of how do we yeah. run sports. So at the end of the day, to answer your question and to counter what Pile was saying, people are actually laughing at Pile <laughs> today by saying, you know, Pile, you, you said so many things that never came true. And one of them is what you said, Africa will win the World Cup before the year 2000. Yeah. It will not happen, I believe, in my and your lifetime, unless our administrators re-educate themselves. So... The biggest challenge in life is to unlearn what we've done for the last 30 years. But surely we can see it has not worked. So, you know, the unfortunate thing in sports management in Africa is that we continuously have to come back to football because it's the most dominant sport yes, on the continent. Yeah. But, 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 but we would probably learn from the Kenyan athletics uh, 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 performances, the Ethiopian athletic yeah. performances you know we can probably learn from that yeah. but because we operate in silos football is over there cricket is over there rugby is over there as i've mentioned to you before uh, the, the the interview is that i've never been in, in and, and 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 seen and in my research as it showed that there's never ever been uh, an exchange of knowledge between different sport codes yeah. how to run a league how to run a tournament. I've never ever seen that. Mm. It might have happened on a small scale or within a conference, but there's never been a dedicated uh, a conversation for that matter. Yeah. So I'm saying only when Africa changes its uh, way of doing business when it comes to sport, then we could probably start talking about them mm. winning the World Cup. Yeah, you're right. It really starts from as we are both about really starting from the foundation and building, as we mentioned before this podcast, building a sustainable 
sporting ecosystem where all of the mechanisms are playing together and working towards something um, bigger, and that that's greater than the individual individual part. Um, one of the reasons why, um, again, as you alluded to, that one of the driving not one of the driving reasons ASU was born, but in doing research about the market and whatnot, especially being based in Europe, you see it's not just Europe, but globally as well. Um, and this is no fault of their own because they're seeing opportunities, but they'll come to Africa, maybe take the best um, the best commodities, but nothing's given back. And I don't know the mentality, maybe thinking or expecting things to be put back is wrong or not, but after a while... It, the shift needs to change from, okay, you know, people are coming and taking ours, but what can we do to actually grow this and create something sustainable so that we can become a, um, not that Africa isn't, but we can have a bigger say on a global sporting scale, not just come, um, best commodities are taken and then gone. So, yeah. <clears throat> this is, we, yeah. we, we can so, changes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. But, but just on that, um, the, the key here is that if, if, a, if a 20-year-old Alex Iwobi is taken from Nigeria, I'm just saying now as an example, yeah. and he's taken to England, he's, nobody's paying any club solidarity payment for developing him yeah, in Nigeria. Yep. Okay? But now FIFA has changed that now. You know the regulations has changed. Yeah. Is that there has to be solidarity payments. Yeah, but we know how it works. Exactly. But what I'm trying to <laughs> shake my head. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. But 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 we, we know the system uh, is in its early days and we hope one day it will be perfected. Yeah. And but you know you know in law and I know that well, is that they are always ways to circumvent. Yeah. But 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 what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to say, you see, the thing about player welfare, it is the one biggest challenge that uh, uh, Africa needs to overcome, and club owners needs to say to themselves, without these players, my business of a club does not exist. Yeah. And, and 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 you know, at the end of the day, we can talk as much as we want to. Yeah. Uh, we have many conferences and many seminars. And then people just go back and do their own thing they've been doing for the last 30 mm -hmm. years. Yeah. So I believe um, that when it comes to player welfare is that where our players end up at the end of the day, those clubs has got a responsibility to where those players come from. Yeah. That, that is all I have to say. Because right. uh, in Europe, uh, a club does not pass on a player without compensation. Yeah, you're right. You're right. In Africa, it happens. This actually... And this is going to be the last point I'll say, and then we'll move on to the final question. But it reminds me of, I alluded to, to you already about um, me studying my master's on the Nigerian Professional Football League. And I remember at the time, I'm not sure if it was fully implemented or not, but Shehu Diku, the um, the chairman of the um, MPFL, wanted to introduce yes. like a sort of tax on African or Nigerian companies who sponsor European clubs. So he wanted like a tax to be put back into into the the development of the league. So yeah, I just mentioned that because it alluded to what you were saying about no solidarity payments, or or rather, it's just been introduced by FIFA. But we'll we'll see we'll see we'll see how that develops. Anyway, we'll see. Um, so yeah, final question now actually, because this has been excellent. But one question which I ask most of my guests: if you were to introduce one aspect to the African sports market, 
literally just one aspect, what would it be? to be uh, the re-education of our current sports executives yeah, and um, teach them, not teach, I hate the word teach, uh, upskill them around yeah. the necessity of the six to eight pillars of corporate governance. Yeah. Because if you look at the case study called the English Premier League, the 20 clubs that founded that league in February 1992 were fed up with the mismanagement of football in Africa and they broke away. Yeah. And they were very well advised by, by Sky Sports. Sky Sports said, we will only invest in buying the media rights or the broadcast rights yeah. if you run this as a business. Yeah. Otherwise, it will fail. So we need to bring, and then we don't need to go to university to do this. Mm. We need to create that charter you know, the charter on good governance and ethics and say to all our leaders and our custodians of sport in Africa, yeah. commit yourself to these eight pillars of accountability that follows uh, uh, to, to that. That's that's all I would introduce in African mm -hmm. sport. Because I know from there onwards, it's just going to mushroom and grow. Yeah. Because everybody's committed to the charter, isn't it? Yep. You're right. But it should be anyway. <laughs> um, but I'm... <laughs> On that note, Garrett, I just want to say thank you so much. For you people listening, I, I'm sure you're very much as appreciative too. Um, Garrett, but thanks for your knowledge, for sharing your knowledge and your expertise and, yeah, leadership skills and how we can improve the market. Um, how can people follow you on, like, social media or websites and whatnot for what you guys are doing? Yeah, I'm pretty much all over. So what I will do is, uh, when you put up the link to the to the podcast, yep. uh, would it be possible to put all my contact details there? Yeah, for uh, sure. Uh, I've got quite a number of uh, uh, platforms that I can share with you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, just send it to me and then I'll um, add it into the links for all of our people to, to hear and see more. But everyone who's listening, thank you for your time. Um, appreciate it. Again, please leave a comment. If you have questions, um, drop that in there. Please like engage. Let us know your thoughts or ideas that you've had from this or maybe things that you weren't aware of that maybe Garrett shed a light on that's helped you. So let us know in the comments. Um, subscribe to our news newsletters too as we are producing newsletters um, of all the key things that happen in the market. And until next time, guys, thanks for your time and hopefully... You'll be back for the next episode. Take care.